you know, one of those things about speaking into a church, people get the impression it sort of like comes from nowhere, but actually it comes out of relationship with the leadership. And uh, I think everything I've been able to share with this church over the years has really come out of that relationship, not just with John, but with the whole team, knowing where you're at. And that makes such a difference. You know, prophetic ministry isn't just turning up and just thinking, hey, God, what do you want to say? It's actually about seeking the Lord. And as I come to you this morning, I, I didn't come here in the dark. I knew that today was going to be a day when you were welcoming new people into the church. And I also knew that PJ for some time has just been at that point where terminal care. So I came with an awareness of those things. And the things I want to speak into today, God's been impressing on my heart over the last few days. And whether PJ was still with us or whether PJ had gone to be with the Lord, I felt that there were some things I wanted to share with you. One of the privileges I've had is to lead the free churches group in this country, which basically brings together everyone that are not Anglican, Catholic, or Orthodox. And that's meant that when I've been working alongside the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, we've had some extraordinary opportunities. And I've sat next to them in some pretty unusual situations. Several times in the throne room at Buckingham Palace. And one of the occasions when I was there, it was PJ that was being honored. Um, it was the Commonwealth celebration. Patricia Scotland was the, uh, who I was talking to last week, she was there as the Commonwealth secretary. The Queen was there, Theresa May was the prime minister at the time. And they were honoring the ambassadors that had come up in the Commonwealth. And there was a booklet that we were given, and there was PJ and his story. And I just thought right then, what an inspirational person. And I don't think that that inspiration that his life has brought stops just because of what happened this morning. I think we're here today, and we've already spoken to the Lord in our pain, and we've continued to worship. But we're here today because I think there's a legacy. There's a legacy that comes from people who faithfully serve the Lord. And you know, when we were welcoming people into the church, it was really obvious that we're welcoming a lot of young people into the church. And this is a great sign of what God is doing. I love Lifeline Church. It's a church that I respect enormously. And one of the reasons I respect you so much is because I think that there are two things that really are attractional in a church. One is that there needs to be a pioneering aspect to the ministry. And you've certainly had that in bucket loads over the years since I've known you. And what you're doing with Lifeline Projects and everything else, that really shows the pioneering heart of the church. But also alongside that, you need pastoral care. Because not everyone is sort of born with that pioneering spirit, although we're trying to instill it in everybody. And I look back at some of the examples in the Old Testament, and I, I always remember those tribes that decided to stay on the east of Jordan because they said, this is a great place to bring up our kids. This is a great place to look after our flocks and our herds. And everyone said, look, we've got battles to fight. And they were thinking, actually, we've got families to raise. <laughs> and yet the truth is that actually those two things go hand in hand. One of the weird things in the Old Testament is that there are times when it talks about beating their plowshares into swords and their pruning hooks into spears. And yet at other times it's saying, now it's time to beat your spears into pruning hooks and to beat your swords into plowshares. 
It's almost as if, as a community, they were never quite sure whether they meant to be fighters or farmers. But one thing they did realize is this, that if you're not prepared to fight for the harvest, you'll lose it. And when the Midianites used to come up and camp on their <laughs> agricultural land every harvest time to see the crops destroyed, I was really grateful for one young man in the Bible. His name's Gideon. He didn't seem to be a very promising character because all he did really was to take a few handfuls of grain and thresh them in the wine press. He didn't even go to the threshing floor. But whilst he was taking those few handfuls of grain and threshing them in the wine press, the angel of the Lord turned up and said to him, you're a mighty man of valor. <laughs> and I think at that point, Gideon was probably looking around and thinking, who else is in this room? Because it certainly isn't me. But you see, what was standing out is that when the rest of the nation was just giving up and saying, well, the Midianites have got the crops, there was one person who says, they're not going to have all the harvest. They're not going to have all the harvest. And God notices that kind of spirit. That kind of spirit that you find in different people in the generation that are prepared to say, we're going to turn a situation round. And of course, PJ sort of followed in the footsteps of his dad and all of these things we know. But with that heart that says, we can turn things round. And I believe that whether we're people that are coming to church because we like the pastoral care, or we're coming to church because we like the pioneering aspect, somehow we've got to learn from each other and partner with each other in both of those aspects if we're going to truly be an attractional church. And one of the things I want to say, and this is the, where I'm going to go to in a moment when I turn to the scripture, which is Psalm 110, for those of you who take a long time to find it, you can start looking now. <laughs> it's not that difficult to find. It's right in the middle. Um, but, you know, what I, what I really am thinking as we're, we're looking this morning, you know, I've, I've been asked over and over again about discipleship programs. And one of the things I've realized is that the people that Jesus raised up to run his discipleship program had been raised in the context of every one of them becoming leaders you see, I think very often we get the impression that Jesus is just in the business of looking for followers. But actually, Jesus is in the business of looking for leaders. <laughs> and he's got this amazing ability, and this is the way his discipleship programs work. They turn followers into leaders. And whether you like it or not, that's exactly what God's trying to do with you. <laughs> now, your leadership role might not be taking on the challenges within a nation in Sierra Leone or something like that. It might actually be just being a witness in the workplace. It might just be taking a lead in your household and in your family. But the discipleship that Jesus brings into our lives takes us from just being followers to actually being leaders. And that is amazing, isn't it? It's what he does. That's what the 120 did on the day of Pentecost. They got out there amongst 3,000 and started straight away turning the lives around of the 3,000 that they were talking to. So I came to you today to share from Psalm 110. But I had a problem, because I read both the New King James Version and the NIV, and they couldn't be more different. <laughs> in fact, on the very verse that I want to speak out, you would think that they were written in different books at different times. They do admit, the translators, that it is one of the most difficult verses to translate in the Old Testament. So you're going to get both versions from me today. But let me just read from the New International Version first of all, and then I'll give you the bit that I want to pick up from the New King James. 
This is what it says in Psalm 110. And one of the reasons I love this psalm is because along with Psalm 2, it's a psalm in which the psalmist is hearing conversations in heaven. And that's unusual. You don't normally get that. But you get it in Psalm 2 where you hear God saying, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And the Lord Jesus saying, you know, you've declared a decree to me. And, and these things are just amazing when you get that kind of intensity of conversation. And in Psalm 110, it begins exactly like that. The Lord said to my Lord, and Jesus quotes this, doesn't he, in the New Testament, when they start saying, how can you talk about being Lord? He goes to this psalm. The Lord, that's the Father, said to my Lord, that's the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to leave it there because the last few verses talk about sort of like the end time battle. And I don't want to go into that. But that verse 3 where it says, Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb, really speaks to my heart. But so does the version I find in the New King James when it says this, Your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. And the contrast here is that those who were putting the scriptures together in the New King James translation were actually ascribing the youthfulness to the Lord. In the New International Version, the youthfulness is attributed to those that are gathering. And it's something about the attractiveness of Jesus that draws us all, isn't it? Many of us came to Jesus in our younger years because we saw in Jesus the one we wanted to follow. But when he gets hold of us, he still keeps working in our lives. And there's a sense in which he constantly renews our youth as well. And we know that Jesus laid down his life at 33. And I've always been encouraged by that time he could say he'd, he'd been tempted in all points like as we are. Which makes me realize there's no such thing as a geriatric temptation. <laughs> They're just reruns of what you've had before. <laughs> if Jesus was in, tempted in all points by the age of 33, there ain't nothing new coming, folks. You just have to keep battling the same kind of temptations that you were battling in the past. But there's a sense in which the Lord is constantly wanting to renew our youth. He's not looking for a sluggish army. He's looking for an army that can fight his battles. And what I love about this is that the whole context of this psalm is that Jesus has sat down after the fight. And you're thinking, hold on a minute, then what kind of army are we meant to be? Are we the army that's about to fight, the army that's fought, or the army? What are we meant to be? And there's something quite extraordinary about the fact that the psalm starts with that statement, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Now, I don't know which point this was said. There are a number of these sort of conversations in heaven that I think must have happened outside of time because they sort of reverberate through time. And you can see that the principle here, because it's picked up not only in Acts 2 when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, but also in Hebrews 1 when it's talking about the Lord coming again and being anointed and all of these kind of things. What the emphasis is, is that the ascended one, the one who's ascended on high is told that now he can be seated at the right hand of the Father. One of the amazing things about the early church was this, that they were able to see in faith that the Lord was seated at the Father's right hand. Everything else their eyes had seen. <laughs> They'd seen Jesus physically walking amongst them. They'd seen Jesus on the cross dying for them. They'd seen the risen Jesus. They'd seen Jesus ascended, but they could only say by faith that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. I know that we had that moment when laying his life down for the Lord, Stephen saw the Lord standing. The only time we've got that record of him standing, it was as if to welcome Stephen home. <laughs> My first martyr's coming. The first one who's laid down his life for me is coming home, and I'm going to stand and welcome him. But the Father has said to Jesus, sit. You fought a fight on that cross that is beyond comprehension. In Colossians, it tells us that on that cross, he dethroned principalities and powers. In Genesis, we're told that, that when his heel was bruised, he was actually bruising the serpent's head. What we have now in the world is just the death throes of the devil. <laughs> I know he's taking a long time to go. He's thrashing around and doing all sorts of things, but the mortal wound has already been received. In fact, everything that's working out now has been the result of what was done on the cross. That's why the father could say to the son, sit down, you've done everything that's necessary. It's the completed work of the cross. And now we're going to watch its outworking. Now don't think for one moment that Jesus is asleep on that throne. <laughs> like someone who's exhausted after the fight. <laughs> when he ascended into heaven, We've got a record of what it must have been like. I don't know whether you realize, but Psalm 24, those last verses, are the celebration of the ascension. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. Earlier in that psalm, it says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord or stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, that's Jesus. In his purity, he went to the cross, climbed that holy hill, got the victory, and is now seated in heaven on the basis of what he's done. But I get the impression when I read Hebrews 1 that it wasn't just, just right, you've arrived, sit down. But it actually talks about him being anointed with the oil of gladness. Theologically, there's all kinds of discussions about when Jesus was anointed. But actually in Psalm 2, it describes Jesus having been the anointed long before he was the anointed one that we witnessed the anointing of. You see what I mean? 
all this de debate about was he anointed at the Jordan? Yes, he was when the Holy Spirit descended. Was he anointed when he arrived in heaven? Yes, he was, because it says so in Hebrews 1. Was he anointed before that? Yes, of course he was, because he is the anointed one. <laughs> all the anointings were just a confirmation of who he is. He's the anointed one of God, chosen to do this work on our behalf. And yet, I think that moment when he was anointed in heaven, and of course in this psalm it talks about him being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. When the oil was poured on the head of Aaron, Psalm 133, it's a description of the unity that we have as a church. It says that when it's poured on the head, it flows right the way down to the lowest. Jesus as our head. Having, guess what? That anointing is still flowing down. <laughs> still flowing down. It's, it's, it's reaching here, you know? It gets as far as Dagenham. It gets as far as Romford. It, you know, what was once the uttermost parts of the earth if you're in Jerusalem? <laughs> and look at the generations. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, the promise is to you and to your children and to those who are far off, what he was declaring is this, this is a repeatable promise. God doesn't have grandchildren. Every generation can experience that which the generation had before. There is no attenuation. This is not like the old ways they used to produce vaccines where they'd pass it through lots of generations until it became weaker and weaker and weaker. The church is not like that. If anything, as we see the power of the Holy Spirit moving generation after generation after generation, we should be seeing greater power, not weaker. Because as each generation sees what happened in the generation before and takes hold of it, and looks at the life of PJ, and looks at the life of other people and said, that is an inspiration to me. We should be seeing more. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming for a weak and flabby church. He's coming back for a glorious church without spot and without wrinkle. So we just got to keep improving. <laughs> We're in God's spiritual gym, if you like. That might not appeal to some of you, but this is spiritual, okay? So what happens physically, you can look after yourself. I just want to challenge you in what God wants to do. Look at it again. The one who is seated on the throne, having won the victory. What does the psalmist be your enemies? I've always loved that, you know, because there's something about the way that Jesus rules, which is very different from what people expect. all down and the answer is because he doesn't have to he's still king no matter what other kings rise up and exalt themselves in front of him he is the king who rules in the midst we live in a world where we see all kinds of crazy things and I know there are times when I've been tempted in my prayers to say God this is time this is time when Jesus needs to get up off his throne and do something and the response I always get from God is, you're wrong. <laughs> you need to come to terms with the fact he's seated because he's done everything that's necessary. So whatever's going on in the world, when we hear of rumors and rumors of wars and all of these kind of things, 
The reason we can be confident is because we've got a savior who's seated on the throne, having won the victory, and he's ruling in the midst. It doesn't matter if the devil calls himself the prince of this world. <laughs> he might think he rules, but God overrules. <laughs> and we need to hold on to that in our hearts. So why am I saying all of these things to you? Because I believe that the Lord is, by his own attractional nature, drawing together an attractional church. And that's what we've got to be. It's great we fill this hall, but there's a lot more people that need to come. A lot more people that need to be attracted. Attracted by a church that's got a pioneering commitment and also a pastoral care commitment too. But not a church where everyone is just there to bask in the pioneering commitment whilst a few fulfill it. Or to bask in the pastoral care whilst we leave it to certain select people in the church. There are people that need to be here that only you personally could pastor. You know, you might say, I'm going to bring them because there's someone in the church who will know how to look after them. Actually, your good church will be saying to you, uh, now you brought them, you look after them. <laughs> and I'm a great believer in that. You know, we put people through our different programs and everything else. But in the end, generally, it's the person who brought, who's got the relationship that enables the growth to come. This is a tractional church because we've got an attractional Lord. This is a church that will gather young people, like PJ, because there's something about Jesus that hasn't grown old. He might look like the ancient of days, but he's still got more energy <laughs> than all of us put together. And he inspires that energy in us, just as he did in the Apostle Paul when Paul wrote that and said all that he does, he does through the energy that Christ inspires within him. What is God looking for from us? One word sums it up for me today. Willingness. Your troops will be willing in the day of your power. That's what God is working in our hearts. A willingness. I know someone came to me once and said, do you know, I want to be willing. I said, well, you already are. You're willing to be willing. <laughs> You might not have got quite where you want to get yet, but you're on the right trajectory. And God very often starts like that, just by us saying, well, I'm willing to be willing. It's just that I'm a little bit nervous about how much being willing might cost me. As soon as people know I'm willing, they're going to find jobs for me. Do you know why there are so many jobs given to the willing? It's because there are so few people that are willing in the church. <laughs> Now, if we were all willing, it wouldn't be a problem, would it? <laughs> the job share would be great. <laughs> but because very often we hide our willingness, it ends up being, oh, brother so-and-so again. Why does he always do it? It's because you don't. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be quite that blunt, should I? But you know what I mean? It's sort of very easy passing the buck. It's like... The response to the Lord when he says, who shall, who shall I send and who will go for us? Lord, here am I. Send him. 
Or Lord, here am I, send her, as it is in some places I go in the world, <laughs> where men are very good at sending their wives to church and never turn up themselves. So, <laughs> willingness is something that God wants to work into our hearts. And it comes on the back of his victory. This is the one who's won the fight. He's not asking you to win it for him. I heard a sermon once about the reason God's telling Jesus to sit down at the right hand is because he's trying to mobilize the church. As if he wants to keep saying to Jesus, for goodness sake, sit still and let the church do something. I don't think it's like that at all. I think in a sense we enter into his rest. We don't have to take the devil on in the way that Jesus had to take him on on the cross. Oh, we, we read that verse in, in, in Revelation where it said, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. And we think, how am I meant to do that? It's just called the normal Christian life. The way we're going to overcome the enemy is not by drawing bloodlines in the sky or sort of bloodlines around our house or painting our doorposts with blood and all the Pentecostal superstitions that have risen up around that verse that we're going to overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. It's just the fact that we're redeemed and we're washed in the blood. And when the devil starts accusing you, you've got an answer. Just look at the blood. Don't look at me. <laughs> Jesus has redeemed me. That's our testimony. I was at a meeting last night when several thousand people gave their lives to the Lord. It was amazing. But they gave their lives because they wanted to know that their sins were forgiven. And once you know your sins are forgiven, <laughs> the enemy's not going to have a hold on you. If you like, you know, when he's reminding you of your past, just remind him of his future. That's a good way out of that one. But you know, the word of our testimony doesn't have to be some great sermon we preach or some great training program we've gone through. It's just that you live what you say. And that becomes the word of your testimony. And loving not your life unto death doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to throw yourself under the first bus that comes along the road. Or even sort of plead to be the next martyr like Stephen. It's just saying there's a bigger priority in my life than my personal agenda. Now, one of the things the church needs to know is it's not sufficient to say that our redemption is just forgiveness of sins. It's the cutting back of self. If you like, sin is just the fruit of self. <laughs> and when Jesus died on that cross, it was to deal with self and not just to deal with sin. Because in a sense, what went wrong in the Garden of Eden, when they turned down the tree of life, and opted for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, everyone has been living out of their own self-sufficiency until they meet Jesus and have to realize that in our brokenness we get the victory. Can you see this kind of army? I mean, you can look around, you can see it around you. We are the army. We're the people who are willing in the day of his power. We're the people that have gathered together because we know that the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father is ruling in the midst of his enemies. And we're gathered together in that. And what an army we are. An army that's willing in the day of his power. 
Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, I'm glad it's the day of his power because we haven't got to that yet, so I don't have to be that willing. I think if we've got that mindset, we're never going to see the day of his power. <laughs> I think it's the willingness of the church just to be living for Jesus and loving one another. And you know, the big thing about loving one another is that that's what the devil hates most. You know, he has an assignment. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he's actually quite good at that particular job. I don't know if you've noticed, but he accuses you to others. If you haven't experienced that, you haven't been around very long. Um, he accuses others to you. You probably do recognize that one. But sometimes he just accuses you to yourself. And that can leave you completely tied up in knots. He is the accuser of the brethren. And the context of that scripture in Revelation about overcoming him is we overcome him in the context of him being the accuser of the brethren. That's where we're going to win. When we stop listening to the lies and the murmurs and the whispers and everything else that he's sowing in. And he's good at it. Sometimes he sticks a thought in the back of your head and runs around the front and accuses you of having it. <laughs> you never really thought it until he told you you'd thought it. And we've got to overcome all this sort of stuff and start living like this incredible army, this willing army, this army which in the New International Version is described as arrayed in holy splendor, young men who've come to Christ like dew from the morning's womb. It's a bit poetic, isn't it, you know, there? That's why the translators have problems with it. How are you gonna do that? Like dew from the morning's womb. Is that what you feel like this morning, guys? Is that how you got up this morning? Oh, I just feel like dew from the morning's womb. No, I, I didn't, to be honest. <laughs> and I'm quite good first thing in the morning. I go for a run early and all the rest of it. But, but there's a sense when we come to Christ that, that he makes us refreshed. And he refreshes us so that we can feel like, hey, morning dew, eh? I tell you, don't drink Mountain Dew. That's got so much sugar in it, that will send you, send you crazy. But being refreshed with the morning dew, that's a blessing we all need to know. So church here, Lifeline Church, I know today is a significant day. You've lost one of your greatest warriors who's been fighting on your behalf. But that's not the end of the story. This is a church that God has designed to be an attractional church, where you make the attractiveness of Christ known, where you demonstrate his pioneering commitment and the pastoral care, but not just as recipients, but as people that drive the agenda forward, knowing that God is in the business of turning followers into leaders. And your people who, by God's grace, can recognize what it says in that fourth verse. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Lord Jesus, are a priest forever. And what does that mean? It means that whilst we're pressing on down here, he's praying for us, rooting for us, believing for us, being there for us, anointing us afresh. That's what it's about. That's why he's the priest forever. It's better than having an Aaronic priest. He had to keep going in and offer messy sacrifices for you. Our great high priest 
has already offered the sacrifice once and for all. Doesn't need any of that. So every time he's there in his father's presence, which is constantly, he has your name written on his heart, on his breastplate. Has your name on his shoulders. Holds you constantly there in the presence of the Lord. I hope that's been helpful. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give thanks for the life of PJ. I know most of you knew him better than I did. I saw him from afar. But we want, Lord, as we say thank you for a life well lived, for someone who not only became an example to the congregation here, but by God's grace, became an example throughout the Commonwealth. And Lord, as those who knew him, we want to rise up with that inspiration. To recognize in you, Lord Jesus, afresh the attractiveness which can cause people to come and give their lives unstintingly for you. And we pray for ourselves today, Lord. Whether we have recently joined the church or been here for years. Lord, we want to be part of this willing army that knows something of that youthful refreshing, that dew of youth. And we want this church to be a powerful attraction for you in this community through its pioneering and through its care. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before I sit down, um, I will be outside because I'd love to get to know you all. Um, I did bring a couple of books, which I will just mention. Um, I wrote a book a while back called Because I Live. I was very struck by the fact that in the upper room, Jesus said to his disciples, because I live, you will live also. And I think that's really what the Christian life is about, that we get the resurrection life of Jesus to live. They were told not to go out and talk about the resurrection until they'd got the resurrection life of Jesus because they needed to demonstrate it as well as talk about it. So I've taken all the resurrection appearances of Jesus and told them again in narrative style. We've produced this book as a coffee table book and it's been used quite extensively like that for people that want to sort of give something, quite an expensive gift really, to, to neighbours and friends because it's written with that kind of appeal. There are some sort of study notes and things like that, but the quality of it was deliberately done like that. Now, it just so happens that I do have a few where on one of the print runs, there was a slight error in that the printer, for some reason, didn't know how to print the number one or four in a certain typeface. So I've got a few that instead of 15 pounds are, are 10. So it's a case of who gets there first, gets the cheaper ones with the missing numbers. But if you want the 15 pound one, that's fine. In addition, my wife actually is, is the real writer in the family. Her latest book is called Call the Desert Midwife. Uh, Marion and I have spent quite a lot of time visiting the United Arab Emirates. And we came across this amazing lady, who, a Syrian lady, who'd gone out in the days before Dubai was anything. It was just, a, well, I remember going out there when there was virtually nothing in Dubai. Um, I used to go to Sharjah. But she actually went right up north to Ras al and uh, 
was just the midwife to all the Arab women living in their tents. And, and most of them had their babies delivered in the tents as well. And we were so fascinated by this lady that Marion asked, could she write up her life story? So it's called Call the Desert Midwife. Uh, this is $7.99, but you can do it by donation because we're giving you all the money we get for this book to two charities. One, Amos Trust, because we're supporting a hospital in Palestine, which is where she did work at one point, and also because we're supporting Middle East media. So come and see me. I can take card payments, and it'd be nice to chat to you. John, thank you for making me welcome. Bless you.